thing. Is that good? That's a brand new cup. I haven't even used that cup yet. Ooh. I got that for St. Patty's Day. He's my shamrock, so nice. you're my shamrock today. <laughs> I'm your shamrock now. Ooh. That's good. All, um, like, 5% Irish that I am. <laughs> European mutt. Nobody's perfect. No. That's... <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Are we live? Yeah, we're rolling. We are on the air. Welcome. Yes. We are on the air, yeah. Got the sign on. Welcome to another episode of Melomaniacs with Mike and Sean. Yeah, we are back. When What, what was our last... Was it like January? I think it was. Because we did one in what, November? Like after the pandemic? Yes. And then I think we did another one like two months later. I think January was our last one. I could yeah, be, that... I, so it's been like two months, right? It has, yeah. yeah. It's been far too long. Yeah. But, you know, just between life, life and work. And- yeah, I, I got a new job, so it's adjusting to that. It's taking a little bit uh, after not working for a year. I mean, like, I worked, but I've been working from home for the last year. Right. So, like, now I'm back out in in the world, like, actually getting up every day, <laughs> going to a job. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> but it's nice because I was starting to get stir-crazy. And uh, mm. I actually, I thought I got burnt out on patient care, but now, like... I'm not doing direct patient care. I'm just doing case management, but I'm still going and seeing patients in face to face in their home, which is different for me because I've never done home health. Okay. So I was seeing them in the dialysis unit and then managing them telephonically for the most part, which sucks because nobody really just check. Nobody wants to talk to you on the phone. So like, it's like you're a cold call salesman, and so like now if like I'm outside your house for our, our assessment, and they're like, oh well, okay, I guess then like because they totally they forget they even made the assessment, right? Like, like all right, yeah, sure, come here. on in, and it's like it's wild, man, going into people's houses during a pandemic, and it's like, yeah, some people are cool and some people wear masks, and then other people are like, do I have to wear? I'm like, I'm wearing a KN95. I'm like to protect you. Right, I'm like I'm, I'm vaccinated. Like I'm not really too worried about it as long as we're sitting six feet apart and I'm wearing my KN95. I'm cool. Right, you know I mean it's not gonna move. So, but it's still weird, like being back in people's houses. Well, yeah, and in that sort of, I mean, it, I've I've pretty much been back to work since June last year, or right. July. Right. You know, we we went back with the art center, but we just had reduced sizes and we had to, you know, clean everything every 30 minutes. Right. And we're still doing a lot of that. Um but you know, it, it still didn't it still doesn't feel the same as like going into somebody's house like if my job was going to different people's houses every day and every week, I would probably feel I don't know. I don't know if I'd feel uneasy or not. Uh, hmm. I think the first week was kind of weird, and now I'm kind of like, whatever, you know what I mean? Right. After a while, it just wears off. I don't know, I've been kind of just like, I'm careful about everything, and I'm very clean, and I'm, you know, I'm not doing anything different than I ever did before as a nurse. Like, everybody else had to catch up to us. Right. As far really? as infection control, like, right. in their everyday lives. Like, here in my house, it's like, how come daddy doesn't get sick? It's because I'm fucking clean, and you guys are dirty. Like... <laughs> Nobody here watch like your pe- filthy fucking people. Animals. Yeah, like you're savages. Like people just like leave the bathroom and don't wash their hands. Or you're coming from outside. You're not washing your like stuff. I just take for granted that I just do all the time. Right. Like as a nurse, even when I'm not, I haven't been a clinical nurse in four years, but it still never leaves you. Right. Like infection control and stuff like that. So like all this stuff when COVID came out and watching people walk around with the gloves touching everything, and I'm like, you realize that you're just. You're not even, you're just another vector for the disease is like, 
Right. Just wearing the same gloves and you're touching everything and just like, it's this, you're just, they're dirty. Yeah. They're dirty now. Like, Your you gloves. know, like in the, in the medical field, we change gloves like three or four, five times in an hour, you know, right. just because of cross-contamination. And it's like, people just think, oh, well, I have gloves on, so I'm, I'm clean. I'm protected. It's like, no, you're actually just spreading everything that you just yeah. touched all over the place. When you just scratched else. your face with your gloved hand, yeah, when you, just, you just wipe shit all over yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, my, the, that's the one thing that worries me about the kids, like, because um, school's getting ready to go back full time. If, if we can maintain the numbers as they are for another week and a half, um, the kids will be going back and, you know, full time. April 5th, my kids yeah, go back. Yeah, yeah that's Thank what we God. were saying. Thank God. God. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, even if it's, it's for like, two months, I'm good. Like two months is gonna be like a vacation. Yeah. No, it's very welcome. Let alone the childcare expenses. The um but like I I watch like <laughs> I watch my youngest still put his thumb in his mouth and I'm like I saw that picture on Facebook. What are you doing? I was like, he's gotta break that. <laughs> yeah. Real bad. And it's like it's mostly at night, but he... It's a, security, it's a security thing. Yeah, he'll do it. He'll do it when he's nervous or when he's bored and absent-minded. And he's the one. I have one kid who always. He's the one who always washes his hands, mm-hmm. but never flushes the toilet. Oh yeah, yeah. And the other kid always flushes the toilet and never washes. His hands. Yeah, my kids like, pretty much do neither. Neither. I was like, dude, what are you doing? I'm like, I'll just walk into the bathroom and be like a you know a six foot Viking log in the toilet. I'm like, what the? What did you eat? Were you gonna make a boat out That's of this? That's like the Why size you- of your leg, dude. Like, where were you holding that? Because he won't shit for like three or four days, and then when he goes, he just it's like a truck stop shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I'm like, oh my god, just flush the toilet. Or, like, it'll be, like, their bathroom will just have pee in it for, like, four days. Like, that's the most rancid. Yeah. And then, like, I had to go in there and clean it, and it's, like, the toilet's just brown. Like, the, the ceramic's not yeah. even white anymore. No, I've, I've definitely found toilets just full of piss. And yeah. then, like, well, it's been at least four days since I've been in this bathroom. Right. <laughs> I don't know. That's the last time it's been flushed. Yeah. Oh. oh, it's brutal. I'm glad it's not, like, just a phenomenon in this household. And you got boys too, so it's like yeah. But my daughter's just as savage as my son <laughs> when it comes to that shit. I think she does flush her poops, but like they leave the pee in there forever. <laughs> I don't know how we've gotten into this conversation. My parent, uh, yeah. <laughs> this, this is how we <laughs> we've just out. devolved we like, into. We've been well. We were talking about being busy, have you know, yeah, life, life stuff, infection control, new job, kids are dirty, logs in the toilet. Yeah, kids are dirty, logs in the toilet. It's a natural <laughs> just segue. I've been, um, I've been taking, so the kids pretty much have control over, they've made a Spotify playlist for their, like, pickup from school, so when Melissa picks the kids right up on. from school, they have, like, the Spotify playlist that they play. Like, but, on, the, like on their drive home? Yeah, on their okay. drive back to the, she takes them back to the learning pods in the, in the center where she works. We have a place where, like, kids who are doing virtual school for the second half of the day, or if they've been there all day, they're doing it in, like, a controlled room. Gotcha. Spatial, you know, socially distanced with a teaching assistant and all that stuff. So they've been going there, but when I, I'm the one that drops them off in the morning, and they always they always ask me to play stuff, and I'm like, no, you're in my car, it's the morning, I'm dropping you off. Yeah. 
You're gonna listen yeah. to what I want you to yeah, listen to. Yeah, my kids try to pull that too. I'll get in the car and like, can you put on pop rocks, blah blah blah, like in my my wife's car, like she does that serious radio. Right. And I'm like, I don't fucking listen to the radio ever. Like my shit is coming all through my phone, all of my title, like <laughs> high res shit. Like I'm not listening to this. Yeah, when whenever they ask me for something, if I don't want to listen to it, I'm like, I don't have that. Yeah. <laughs> Radio's Spotify. broken. <laughs> But it's awesome. I've been listening to, um, uh, I don't know, mostly I've been, my oldest has been wanting to listen to more KRS-One, because a couple of the ones that That's I've, your shit. Yeah. The couple of the ones that I've played for him, he's really been into it, and I've, you know, like, I'll give him some background on it. I'll be like, oh, he wrote he wrote this song after this happened, and, you know, this, this was going on in the Bronx and Brooklyn back in the 80s, and that's what he's rapping about. And I played a song called Mad, Mad Crew for him from what I think is is the best KRS-One album, which is Return of the Boom Bat. And I played Mad Crew for him, and it's just, it's all about how, you know, his crew is the best, and everybody else is a sucker. And uh, so he just, he loves, oh, you know what? The conversation started because we were talking about diss tracks. He was talking about there's there's some, like, YouTuber that makes Fortnite diss tracks, and that's what they wanted to listen to in the car, and I was like, fuck that, no. that's not a diss track. Veto. There is no 15-year-old white kid that's allowed to have a diss track. A diss track. <laughs> so I played, Of, like, what, your teacher? <laughs> yeah. Other, no, other Fortnite players, like, other oh, famous oh, okay. YouTubers. And yeah. I'm like, no, I'm not listening to one, one kid diss track another kid about, no. About Fortnite? So I played, yeah, so I played a couple of songs for him, and... And when I played Mad Crew, he was just, like, he was so into it that he just keeps wanting to hear more. Right. So that made me really happy. Jude's been really into, like, um, he's been really into, like, Five Seconds of Summer and, you know, the, the equivalent of alternative, modern alternative pop rock. So Imagine Dragons and Five Seconds of Summer and stuff like that. Right. So that's all right. It's fine. Like, he gets, dude, and he gets down. Like, He's shy sometimes, but then when he starts dancing, he just fucking grooves. Like, I want to put him in a hip-hop dance class or, like, something to, like... Cause, I don't know, because he seems, like, really happy. Like, he gets that glow about him when he's just dancing. That's actually how I was as a kid. Yeah. I, I danced all the time. So you could have been a hip-hop dancer. I could have totally been one of those, like, Kids Incorporated. Remember that show? Oh, yeah. Remember oh, Kids Incorporated? Yeah, I do. That's going I, way back, dude. It does. That's that's like that's like beyond Nickelodeon times. It's right like now. late '80s. Um, yeah, I was I was singing. That's what I did all the time. Yeah, I always sang. I love to dance. Every wedding, every like family party, like they were like, "Whose kid is that?" <laughs> so they're like, "Is he? Does he have some black in him? Like, what is going on there?" <laughs> yes, that reminds me very much of of the early '90s doing doing weddings and shit with my dad. When he was DJing. Yeah. Oh, God. That sounds like so much fun. It was, man. It was such a cool experience. I'm sure I've talked about it before. Yeah. But, mm -hmm. like, it was... It was really awesome to have that, like... Not only that time with my dad, but also... Just because it was such a specialization... Focus on music. You know? It wasn't just sitting around appreciating it. It was like, no, I'm getting, I'm getting paid to to mix it and like you've got to go you know you got to do a couple of upbeat songs in a row and he, like he was talking about how the tempos of these three songs are the same so I always play them together and right. then I take it down to like 
this like slow song so people can get out and dance. And then I do the oldies mix to try and get the old people out, you know, the twist and all that stuff, like one after the other four or five songs in a row. And like he had this real like art to it, which was really cool. You know, he's <laughs> I tried to transition him over to like a digital thing. I mean, he's never they've never had the internet. They'll never buy a computer, none of that. But like even just two CD drives and like a mixer and a scrub wheel and stuff, and he was just like, ah, I'll just <laughs> I'll just go back to the one disc. Yeah, your and parents the tape are like deck. off the grid, dude. Yeah, yeah. They re- they really are. They're trying to be. That's you know they have cable. That's right. as connected as they are. As they have, but cable. no internet. No internet. It's crazy. Yeah. No internet. They have a smart TV and no internet. It's just the cheapest TV they could find, right. the size they want. Yeah, I mean, they're all smart TVs yeah. now, so... So they're just like, we have the cable hooked they're up just, in the back. They just don't have the smart part. Right. Yeah. I was like, as soon as they do away with coaxial cable, I don't know what you're going to do in this right. house. Right, which is, you know, <laughs> probably soon. Yeah. Because everything's streaming. Oh. But, yeah, but they're sh- good. I still... I, they, they still subscribe to Netflix, like I gotta have Netflix, but I pay for it and right. I control their queue. Right, like because right, right. <laughs> they it's actually DVD.com. They don't even call it Netflix anymore. It's just called DVD.com. Huh. But it's still run by Netflix, and it's you know right. I mean they're trying to phase it out, so you can't get a lot of new stuff or the right, new right. stuff that comes out. You got to wait for DVD.com. But they don't they don't care. They just like watching like cop movies and and lawyer movies my mom loves horror she's like a freak about horror you put some fucking little girl getting possessed and tearing people apart and my mom's all over it that's awesome it's so crazy that's like so that's like my alley like i love just cheesy bad horror stuff yeah but my dad from the 80s like 80s horror movies are so good 80s horror is brilliant so brilliant um and now that they're doing like homage movies to that stuff, it's pretty yeah. impressive. Like yeah, there's yeah. like a lot of these movies that are coming out. Like they redid, um, you know, well, they did the um, what's the famous one? Evil Dead. Evil Dead. They you know, redid they redid that, the yeah. Evil Dead, and they did a couple Halloween. other ones. I spit on your grave. Like Rob Zombie redid. Or, was Halloween. that a new Halloween or was it a remake? He's done. Yeah, I don't remember. They've done a bunch of Halloween stuff, but. Rob Zombie did one that was really bad. It was like just super violent, like not really. House of a Thousand Corpses. Well, his that yeah, was that his was thing. good. That was that good. was good. It was super creepy. And then the the Rejects one, Devil's Rejects was, oh, was right. Not as good. It was more just dark and just violent for violence's sake. And it's kind of right. like I don't know. It's like it's like he's just trying to shock people, and it's like all right, like yeah. it's been done before. Like you like you watch the movie, you feel like you have to take a shower. Like you're just like. <laughs> This is That's really... how I felt about Hostel, Eli Roth. Did you ever watch? I like I, Eli, I like Eli Roth. I, I like him as a as like a designer in a way. Did you see the Green Inferno? No, that he did. I did not. A few years ago, uh-uh. so it was a remake of a uh, a seventies um, slasher flick. Okay, like gore, just total gore. Like so, like these, you know, it's the typical um, American tourists uh, go on a trip in the in the Amazon. And they get taken hostage by these like ab- like these uh, cannibal oh, good. Um, oh, tribe God. that nobody even knew still existed, and so like they're basically still like living back like 500 years ago, and like they just and it's just like just gore. I mean, just for gore's sake, just yeah. like any way you can think of like people getting like killed and like but like a modern take on it, so it's just super like graphic. Yeah, 
But I thought it was funny because, like, it gets to the point where you're just like you're watching it, and, like you're laughing because it's so outlandish, <laughs> like the way that they can find ways to just dismember people and shit. But I don't mind. It doesn't. I have a strong stomach, so it doesn't really. Yeah, the the like that stuff never really bothers me when it when it starts becoming like torture. I get like emotionally disturbed. Yeah, but like I never feel like nauseous or sick. Right, right. right. I'm always just kind of like I don't. I don't need to, to spend my time watching somebody else suffer. Yeah. But, like, zombies, like, tearing people apart and eating them. Yeah, I'm that's all about Yeah, it. I'm all about that, too. All about it. But it's, it. like, the ones where it's, like, rape and, like, just really just, like, horrible, like, you know, yeah. emotional torture type stuff where you're, like, yeah, yeah, that's tough. That's brutal. Because it's somewhat, like, it, it could happen to you. You know what I mean? Like, right. it's somewhat relatable, whereas, like, you're watching zombies and shit and it's, like so fiction fantasy reality like not right. part of reality yeah texas chainsaw massacre is probably still one of the scariest it's horror so movies i've ever seen it's so disturbing and it was so good the way that they yeah because they just basically they're just so like, gritty you picked up a hitchhiker and now now all this is gonna happen <laughs> and you're like right. oh oh god right this could happen but like the, the characters were, they were just so ripe to get killed like they were just yeah you were just like you didn't mind so much because they were so annoying. <laughs> That's true. There was, um... But the remake was even good with Jessica Biel. I, actually, I, I liked the remake. I, I, I actually liked that. it. I'm surprised you haven't seen that one. Yeah, I liked, Jessica um, Biel, was, it was, like, prime time, like, in her peak, wearing, like, Daisy Dukes, like, with the, you know, now the cowboy talking. hat. Like, oh, dude, she was ridiculous. Mm. Gonna have to look that up, then. Yeah, it was good. I think, I think... Uh, Way better than some of the horrid sequels that came out. Oh, oh no! Like the one with Matthew McConaughey. Have you ever seen that one? I don't think it's so. It's like one of the ones that like he like tries to get people to forget that he was in. It was like, uh, but it's <laughs> so good. He's so outlandish. <laughs> he plays like one of the you know the, the family. They go into like the family history, and it's like they're all around like the dinner table, and like Matthew McConaughey's just just super out there like hammy like crazy right. character and it's just like I can't believe you haven't seen it it's like oh, one man. of the greatest campy horrible horror movies ever made it's like Texas Chainsaw 3 I think oh, alright I think it was late 80s early 90s early 90s I think now would you would you consider something like um fucking Patrick Bateman is American Psycho. American Psycho. Yeah. Do you consider that horror because it's like slasher esque in the sense that it's mm. like a mass murderer? Yeah, it's more under like psychological horror. But yeah, yeah it's so gory that yeah, I could slot it in under horror. Because that's something like I, I feel like there's a traditionally. It's definitely scary. Traditionally, horror movies don't have much of a soundtrack to speak of, but I, I feel like. The more modern you get, like the American Psycho soundtrack, like all those '80s songs, and the way that he talks about them, oh yeah, adds like a layer oh, yeah. of it's so nostalgic. sociopath to it. That's like it makes the those songs juxtapose the, the horror that's happening. Right. But then there's the same with like like Zombieland. Like Zombieland mm. movies have a pretty great soundtrack, but they're they're more intended, I guess, to be comedies. But they're still horror, in a sense. So I feel like the more modern they've come... I'm only asking because... They've gotten better with the soundtracks, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've been... I've had this, like, horror movie zombie script 
that I've been working on for years. What? That everyone's I know it's so weird, but like I'm a fair weather writer, so right, like, right. when I have an idea, I get like super into it mm -hmm. and I like what I write, mm -hmm. but I never dedicate myself to doing it like every day. Right. So and and I have trouble getting past the the phase that they say all writers should have where it's like you just write and it doesn't matter how shit it is or right. if there's spelling errors, you just write until it's done and mm -hmm. then you go back and edit right. it. And I'm so not like that. Like, I have to write and then edit and then write and then edit and write mm. and edit. And I think that's what kills it. But, like, so much of a focus of what I'm writing is based on music that I like. You know, music that I hear and I'm like, oh, this would be a good scene in that movie. And then I get inspired to, like, oh, go back. I've and always said it. that I missed my calling. I should have been, like, a soundtrack. Put her together. I should have yeah. been, like, somebody that puts soundtracks together for I think movies. put her together sounds better. Yeah. Whatever that word is. Yeah, I should have been, like, a soundtrack guy. Like, that would have been, like, just, that's my job. You know what I mean? Just to yeah. pick sound, pick music for movies. It's like, how do you get that gig? I think and most of the time it comes from just the director. And, like, the director knows somebody that's good with, like, knows music. Sure. And it's kind of like, I don't even know if that's, like, a real job. You know what I mean? Like, that, that somebody's like, oh, well, he's the number one soundtrack guy in the business. Like, right. I don't even know if that exists. Yeah, I mean, there's... So I know that there's guys that do scores. That's different. Yeah. Like, Danny Elfman and, like, all those, you know, yeah, yeah. guys that do scores. But it's totally different than, like, a soundtrack. <clears throat> yeah, well, some... So, some of the places that I've sent original songs are actually, like, that's what they're called as music supervisors. Right. Or, um... And that's what they do for... For like Netflix, they look for like that song that's going to be at the end of you know. This I'm episode sure that there's yeah, there's probably a name for it. I just I'm ignorant. You know, what I mean? yeah. like I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. So so and and same with like movies. You know, music supervisors are a really good way to like get your original song out there. I mean, it'd be nice, right? Especially if it's like a movie or something that hits real big, right? And your song is in it. Sure, Ugh, that'd be dope. But I think, I mean, like, the fucking 90s movies had some of the best soundtracks. Like, Are we segueing? We can. Is this we can segue. I, I'm feeling a segue coming on. <laughs> a segue into Segway the 90s. into our title, or into our uh, our topic for today's <laughs> podcast. Well, it, I mean... It, it took us a half hour to get there, but... <laughs> it did, but it, it also sort of happened organically. Yeah. It made the first thing I thought of when you said I should have been putting soundtracks together. My first experience with, like, really falling in love with a soundtrack was Dirty Dancing. Okay, I should be honest about that. But after that... <laughs> singles for me. Oh, singles, right? Yeah. It was The Crow. It was like a huge, yes! huge Crow. soundtrack yep, for me. Yep, yep, yep. They were around um, the same time. But yeah, Dirty Dancing, I was probably 12 when my sister dragged Dirty us all to go see that movie. Dancing. Or 11. I was definitely too young. <laughs> but like, that's... That's really where I fell in love with a lot of the oldies music that I liked. Because I was probably 10 or 11. Nobody puts baby in Because that would make sense because that would mean that my sister was 17 or 18. And when that movie came out, she was dancing. She was, she was in love with Patrick Swayze. She was all over it. Yeah. So I actually, she went to see it like 12 times in the theater. And then she took the whole family once, which, oh, yes. She took the whole family once, which included me. And I like that's where I fell in love with Otis Redding with these arms of mine. That's where I fell in love with Sam Cooke. And like, there's so much good music in Dirty Dancing. Um, yeah, so I I really liked that. You know, um, I really liked that experience of of ha having music to associate, having the movie to associate the music to. 
kind of opened me up to it and all these different artists. It, it, you know, it's almost like making a best of CD when you're throwing a soundtrack together. I mean, it, it you know, it has to it has to make sense with the scene. But um I but we're going to spin vinyl today. Yes, let's do it. Yeah. Vinyl it is. I mean, that's fine. I can I can always talk when you get out of the chair. I don't mind. But yeah, The Crow, I remember in high school when The Crow came out, everybody was already freaking out about it before. But now this is like before there was proper internet and before there was proper, you know. Big, empty. Yeah. Uh, and and people were going nuts about how Stone Temple Pilots had a song on it. And there was a an unreleased Nine Inch Nails song on it. And there was... <laughs> yeah, dude, fucking Dead Souls and, and The Cure. There was an unreleased Cure song on it. It was the opening track. Everybody had that soundtrack. Yeah, so people were nuts about it. It got such a buzz that as soon as it was available, I bought it. I think I bought the soundtrack before I saw the movie, and then as soon as the movie came out, I went to go see it, you know, four or five times the in the theaters. Um, the awesome. I mean, that was that was a, a a pure melding of worlds for me. Was movies and music together? Oh, I still before I get yelled at. I've owned this soundtrack as well. I still have never seen this movie. It's it's one of my favorite movies. I still it still just never happens seen to be singles. one of my favorite. It's a Cameron Crowe movie. So it was like before Cameron Crowe blew up with like Jerry Maguire and shit. Oh, okay. This was like and a lot of people shit on this movie, but I still it's like it holds its place is in it, my heart. Is it worth like watching today Dude, or am I going to so, be bored as fuck? No, it's so 90s nostalgic. Okay. <laughs> and Matt Dillon's character alone is worth the price of admission. I'm texting Melissa that we need to watch singles just so I don't forget. I think I own it. <coughs> I'm sure you... Oh. I may or may not own it. 92. What, the soundtrack? Uh, the this, movie. This movie. Yeah, 92, yeah. yeah. So the movie is literally like... It's a it's a, basically a love letter to Seattle. So Seattle in the early '90s, for people well, that don't know, was like have I not seen this? was like the epicenter of the universe. So like yeah. it spawned an entire cultural grunge phenomenon that like, and there's been documentaries on it that are fantastic. Sorry, let me just move a little closer. Yeah. Since it's not in your way. Is that better? Yeah. So it was like, um, and he did this movie. Actually, he re- did the movie in like '90 90 or '91, before the whole grunge right at the. St- Right at the time that the movie was done, right before uh, "Smells Like Teen Spirit" came out, okay, so yeah. like that was what broke the whole Seattle sound scene, look, everything. Like the whole country was, like, was addicted to grunge for three years or something right, like that. Yeah, yeah. But he actually was way ahead of the curve with this movie. Well, yeah, I was gonna say, but that's, that's it. Came crazy. out like right before. The, 10 came out and smells like teen spirit everything was coming at the same time right so like he literally just if he would have released this out this movie like a year later it probably would have been super popular right but the fact that he did it right before the bubble was like just shitty timing but he was way ahead of the curve as far as introducing the bands on this album which was smashing pumpkins alice in chains Mm. mud honey Soundgarden, and every one of them all play live in the movie what? So like yeah, they're all have performances in the movie. Oh, Pearl shit. Jam is Matt Dillon's backing band in the movie. <laughs> Eddie Vedder has lines. He plays the drummer of the band. Oh shit! So it's yeah, like probably because they were in between drummers as always. As always, right? So <laughs> oh fuck, and, dude! I can't oh, yeah, believe you I haven't seen it. It's it. so good. 
Well, and I mean, to say that the Seattle scene is what launched my interest in music is an understatement because Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, and Nirvana were the four bands. You know, the the only thing outside of that was probably Nine Inch Nails. Right. Was the was like the fifth band of my pentagram of, right. of unholy music. Oh. And these were two songs on here, not to cut you off, but these were yeah, two. This is these were even. State of Love and Trust and Breath, two of my favorite Pearl Jam songs of all time. Not on any of their albums. Right, never on anything else. Only on this soundtrack. And this is like this happens to be like one of my favorite Pearl Jam songs of all time. Yeah, it's just really the way good. it was recorded didn't sound like shit. Like it was really well done, and it didn't sound like I was just like, what is this? The first time I heard it, because I knew ten. I had never heard this song. And it's just, like, perfect. Yeah, I like the unplugged version they do, too, from MTV, which is, again, like, if you didn't see the movie, you'd have no fucking idea what this song was. Jeff Ament's bass on this song is just so tight. And Eddie Vedder's voice, like, doesn't... You don't get any better. Early 90s Vedder. Dave Abrazee's. Yeah. The best drummer. Although Jack Irons is really good. Yeah, it's just so solid. Yeah, it's... This is breath, yeah. There's There's been, like, one person in my life that has, you know, genuinely told me that they cannot stand Eddie Vedder's voice. Oh, I've heard other people, yeah. And I was gonna There was say, a huge backlash because they were so popular. Sure. Any band that gets big yeah, yeah. like that, like like I was saying about Dave Matthews this week on my... When I, right. The stuff that I posted, it was like, Whew. dude, the backlash, like the Dane Cook thing, like... You see so much of yeah. it that you're like, I fucking hate these guys. Right, yeah, and I know why I hate them. Because they're just so everywhere. They're rammed down your throat, and a lot of yeah. the stuff just got... You just got burnt out on it. But, like, I can no, totally get... Sense. I totally get the hate on Eddie Vedder, because he's, you know, he's hateable. Yeah. But he's also genius. Yeah, I just think... I just think he's got such a unique voice that... I don't know, there's... I, Everybody like, copied him after that. Yeah. It was like everybody oh, was yeah. trying to sound like him. Oh, God, yeah, no. Scott Stapp made a whole fucking career on <laughs> it. Scott Stapp stained? Yeah. That band Cold? I mean, people oh were God. trying to say Stone Temple Pilots, but I was like, ah, I give Wyland a pass because Wyland's phenomenal. Yeah. Because he also is a, ten times the frontman performer than Eddie Vedder. Close. Yeah. Eddie Vedder's really... When Eddie Vedder was young, he was, an, he was a savage. Yeah, yeah. He would, like, climb the stages and, like, do what... He was crazy. Yeah, I never saw STP. But, I never saw Skyline. But Scott Weiland live was, like, David Bowie type. Like, he was just right. so, like, captivating. Like, he came out in different costumes. Like, he was just very... Char- and he, he got better as his career went on. Like, yeah, yeah. The first album, they were very just, like, kind of punk grunge type that core is a very hard album yeah and like he just had the it's buzz cut drum centric yeah yeah chords. i mean he just had like the buzz cut with the purple hair the first album and then right. he kind of morphed into like this like very david bowie type character like yeah, as his yeah. career progressed yeah delio i think i think dean delio too is this extremely underrated guitarist oh my god the, what the, they do the in, brothers in, the yeah. leo brothers yeah. they're geniuses the yeah. rhythm section is ridiculous yeah it's no, like, you can't shit on Stone Temple Pilots. I don't care who. You, they're they're so good. Yeah, I the last uh, core was definitely the one that I listened to. Uh, I, I, I shouldn't say the most because Purple or Purple or, was my jam. Yeah, I mean because that was the one. Because core actually was almost kind of early. 
Like it was that's an old record. Yeah. I mean that came out around yeah, yeah. the same I time as, as 10 and all that stuff. Um, and, but Purple came out like 94 and I was just I was just obsessed with that album. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was again, that was like the, in the Crow soundtrack, Big Empty was on it. Big Empty. Kind of pushed the Came the out before sales. that album even came out. Yeah. And then when fucking Vaseline hit as a single, man, it just had that that video was awesome. Wow, 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 yeah, like he, the sound on that guitar. It really hurts me. I don't have any of their stuff on vinyl right now. Oh, really? Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, damn it. Mm. I have I, wonder, to, I have to at least get Core and I have to get Purple on yeah, vinyl. I was gonna say, I wonder what what's considered their most well recorded album. It probably could be Purple. Purple's so well done. Yeah. Core is very dirty and like yeah, very imagine, 90s, you know. Yeah, I imagine Core is very like under. It's under been remastered. It has been remastered. Okay. Yeah, no, I'd be I'd be interested to hear them. Um, what's the the other one? Number four is a really well produced album. The one with Sour Girl and uh, Down. Oh Dude, right, Down is yeah. like my favorite Stone Temple that's Pilots the, that's song. That's the last one I really listened yeah, to. Yeah, I, I couldn't get into many after that, but yeah. Tiny What's, Music is really good. Tiny Music's the one with Interstate Love Song. No, right? that's on Purple. That's on Purple too. Yep. Damn man, that album Purple has slaps. like still. Purple remains. also has still remains, which right, is yeah. probably the best Stone Temple Pilots song <laughs> I was ever made. Say, I'm fucking so glad anybody, that he said yeah, that. anybody that's like a real STP fan, that's like I've, I've seen it on message boards that are like still remains. Oh, drop Mike. It's, <laughs> like, just, <laughs> it's just such a fucking heartfelt. Song and yeah, the lyrics so, are so like, beautiful. Ugh. Yeah, get all the feels on that one. And it's, just, it's just a really good song. That yeah. whole album is just so solid. And then uh, Tiny Music, I really liked because they did some different shit. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that was Bang and Blame, right? That was Tiny Music. No, Bang and Blame, Bang Bang before? Baby, Bang Bang Baby. Is that what it's called? Something like that. Bang Bang Blame. Like that's all. Bang and Blame is REM. What? Bang and Blame is an R.E.M. song. Well, which of... Oh, I'm thinking of Bang Bang Baby, though. Yeah, it's, okay. I forget the name of that damn song. <laughs> I know it's not that. It's something else, baby. <laughs> this... So hard to listen to now. Mm. But it's like... And it's in one of the coolest parts of the movie. Like, every one of these songs is placed in like, a specific part in the movie. Except for maybe the Pearl now Jam this, songs. Now, this is Chris Cornell. Yeah. Seasons. Seasons. Okay, yeah. I was like, I know this song from something else though. So it was in. Was it on like? Maybe I only know it from this, because I swear I know it from a different what? album. Seasons, or maybe it's just the guitar. I don't know what else this was on, unless it was on one of his solo things. Right. Because they had for a little while, you know, they had like, um, for uh, Temple of the Dog. They had a couple of songs that were Pearl Jam songs, yes. but then Chris Cornell changed the lyrics. I have that. Sang I have that on vinyl as well. <laughs> Temple of the Dog. Just for that, I'm just gonna order Purple right now so I can have it before you. It'll be. Damn you! <laughs> I'll race you on Amazon right now. <laughs> I can order. We both Purple have our first. phones out. We're like, order now. Delivered by Sunday. Extra sixteen dollars. I'll pay an extra twenty dollars. Oh, the guitar is so good. It is. Alright, so Seasons. Big Bang Baby. Big Bang Baby. Alright. I love that song. And that actually, that video is one of my favorite videos because they, they made it look like an 80s video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like one of my white favorite videos of all time. 
But it didn't sound like him at all. He changed his voice completely for yeah. that song. Um, this had to be maybe maybe it was just featured on like an A sides kind of thing because this is the only album that it says it's it's listed on. So, mm. dude, you can only get purple. Dude, it's like eighty dollars oh, on Amazon. Shit! Did you see this? I did not. I didn't actually it's get like that far. Eighty dollars and like a hundred dollars, like new. But it's the 2019 remastered version on vinyl. What? And it's still that expensive? It's expensive, yeah. That's crazy. They must not. They must not have printed a lot of them. I guess not. <laughs> to discogs we go. But it's it's uh. <clears throat> Well, it looks like it's double album. Well, that's good. I feel like it was literally just released this year. That's crazy. I mean, I know there wasn't a lot of. There's really not a lot vinyl of vinyl made. Can't, you can't get a lot of vinyl sent out of the stuff. of the '90s stuff. Pearl Jam always put out vinyl. That's true. They were the first to oh. really get into it. God damn it! I'm still so pissed. I know. I don't know. I don't remember if I said this on the podcast or not, but. I bought you had Vitology, Vitology. original. Yep, yeah. because I because I loved Pearl Jam and I loved the way the album was set up. And my dad had a record player, but I didn't really. Right. And I bought it and I never listened to it. Right. And I have no idea where it is. I mean, I have an idea. I have an idea. I think it's with a she devil. You can but, you can get Pearl Jam's ten for seventeen bucks. Nice. Delivered to your door on Thursday. <laughs> for ten. Look at this. That one I did pick up. Nirvana's finally. Bleach in a red and black marble colored vinyl. $65. Jesus. That looks really sweet, though. What is it? It's Bleach in a... Oh, red and black vinyl. Marble. Mm. This is the kind of stuff that just puts me down like a fucking wormhole of like just spending on awful <laughs> just stuff I don't need. As we were like, oh, we ran out of, like, ran oh, out of time on the... Oh, I just dropped $100 on records. Okay. Nine for sale from $40 for the 2013 vinyl release of Purple on Discogs. This is the one that I so would probably get if I was going to get it. Oof. I figure if I'm spending that much money, I might as well get the exclusive, exclusive blue splatter blue. vinyl. Yeah, right? Why not? Because I'm a fucking nerd. <laughs> I, I appreciate your nerd jock bronus. <laughs> Mother love them. So oh, this, this was yeah. the original band. Andrew Wood. Andrew Wood. This is a really pretty song. I never listened to... I, I had their double album, and I bought it because yeah. of Temple of the Dog. They're very kind of glam. They were, like, kind of towards the very beginning of grunge. Like, the, his voice is very, like, glam-rocky. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I can see that. But well, he was supposed to be a really charismatic yeah. rock man, too, yeah. right? yeah. Well, that whole Temple of the Dog was dedicated to him. Mm-hmm. That was that album wouldn't even exist if he didn't die. Damn it, Purple. All right, well, I'm not getting it today, even though I got my stimmy check. I know, I didn't get mine yet. Everybody everybody I know has gotten theirs except for me. I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> yeah, this... So, I know I, I know I listened to it, but I'm sure it was, it was definitely not grungy enough for me at the time, so I never really stayed too focused on it. An album that I need to pick up on vinyl since we just heard Wood from Alice in Chains um, is Dirt. I would love to have a vinyl of Dirt. Yeah. Um, 
I think Jar of Flies is probably my favorite overall Alice in Chains album. I'd have to agree. Yeah, but... And a lot of purists would hate that, but... Yeah, but it's just... Dude, to drop seven songs that are complete sound completely different from anything else you've done i mean there's some acoustic stuff on sap but sounded so completely different but still sounded like alice chains that shit was good <laughs> facelift is only 20 bucks <laughs> i hate i hate that uh it's become so popular again because it's all so expensive what vinyl vinyl yeah well and my dad's got such a huge collection but like they smoke all the time in their house so every vinyl sleeve smells like smoke right people secondhand stores won't even buy them so like it's like he's got some really good shit like he's got original Beatles shit and he's got all this stuff that he's collected since he was a kid yeah alright that's pretty that's pretty solid yeah yeah this song when it picks up it's good oh this one is Jar of Flies and Sap like a combo pack I guess so yeah this album <laughs> this song actually like he puts this song this is in, like, also on singles yeah this is the first side oh, okay. of singles it's actually, it's actually a double LB the soundtrack it's two albums yeah I'll have to, I'll have to which is pretty it. awesome for a soundtrack That's, and it's actually a really good vinyl pressing which is impressive for a soundtrack but this was the first time I heard Drown by Smashing Pumpkins was on this soundtrack. Okay. All right. And it's like in a really cool part of the movie when it comes on, too. It's got that that familiar opening, that guitar opening. And that's like a seven and a half minute song. That's a long song. But yeah, Mother Love Bone has some good shit. Because you got to figure it's like half of Pearl Jam, basically. Right. The right, rhythm, right, right. the rhythm section, basically. It was Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament, and then I think they got Mike McCready from somewhere else. But I could be wrong on the history. God damn! Dude, I forgot how good this song is. Sounds good, doesn't it? I was gonna say it sounds really great. You know what I have loaded up for you? Um, once we get sick of this one, I have In Utero on vinyl. Nice. And I have it loaded onto the other record player. Okay. I have another turntable over there that's hooked up into the Big Boy Solid oh, State Amp. Oh, sweet. So it goes right into the big speakers. Oh, fuck yeah. yeah. I want to hear that yeah, shit. Yeah, it's so loud, dude. <laughs> <laughs> it's so loud. And I want to play side two because I'm sick of side one. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, that means I don't get to hear Scentless Apprentice, but that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, it cut off at 47 minutes, so we might not have lost too much. Because, like, even though it's, like, 320 now, I feel like by the time I got here and set up. Right. So, hopefully we didn't lose too much of what we were talking about. But... Yeah, okay. But there's about there's 45 minutes left on the card, so that's good. Um, so we were talking about, uh, I was explaining Kid 90 
yes. the Punky Brewster Punky story Brewster on Hulu. Story. And like how ridiculous like her entire story. She was of. like all all over the nineties musician scene. She <laughs> dated everybody, dude. That's like so funny. she lost her virginity to Charlie Sheen. And he was like twelve years older than her. She was seventeen, he was like thirty. Of course it's Charlie Sheen, surprised. complete yeah. fucking creeper, dude. <laughs> um Oh. Charlie Sheen, she dated Jonathan Brandis, she dated Brian Austin Green, like you Jonathan Brandis from Sidekick. Yeah, the, the one who killed himself. Yeah. All of her friends killed them. They all like she had eight friends during the movie that all like committed suicide or died of like drug overdoses. Holy fuck. I, was I don't just, like, I don't remember Jonathan Brandis killing himself. Yeah, he but... hung himself. Oh shit. Yeah. Right after like uh and he he didn't get the really part bad. in Hearts War. He they cut his scene in Hearts War. Like, he had, like, a very small part, and they, like, almost cut it to nothing. And he was, like, having trouble getting, like, work after being a child star. And he just, like, he already had, you know, issues. Sure. And they found him hang, hang He, like, hung himself in a hotel room. Like, it was pretty tragic. It was, like, 2003. Jesus, man. Yeah. But, like, all of her friends. Like, it was, like, the one guy, the two of the kids from, from Kids. From kids, yeah. The two skaters, they both died. One from drugs, the black guy. It was cocaine-induced heart attack, and then the other kid hung himself or shot himself, um, Hunter Pierce or whatever his name was. And now she's got a whole brand new show. Huh? <laughs> now there's like a new Punky Brewster show. Yeah, they did a reboot like last yeah. year or something, and I think this all came around around the same time. It was pretty good marketing on her part. Right? But, um, That's wild, man. Yeah, it was like talked about how like in the beginning it was all about her like having these huge boobs after she like got older and she had to get breast reduction right. surgery. Yeah. And they sexualized her at like 13 because she developed so early. Right, right. And, uh, you know, how Hollywood just like chews girls up and spits them out. And it was like... And then it went into, like, her just, like, partying with, like, all, like, the stars of, like, that era. Jesus. And, like, they had their own little just click of, like, Hollywood, like, actors. And it was, like, Brad Dorff and, oh, uh, sure. from, from Blade. Yeah. And, uh, because he was in The Gate. Remember The Gate? I do remember The Gate. Yeah. Which oh. is, like, one of the greatest horror movies of all time. I fucking loved that movie. And, uh, he was a little kid in that one. Yup. But he, they all ran in the same, like, pack in the oh 90s. God. Balthazar Getty and, like... All these super rich, like, just Hollywood family types, and like she, you you name it, she dated like Danny Boy O'Connor from House of Pain was like her first real boyfriend, <laughs> and like she partied with, the, she was like on tour with House of Pain for like oh a year, God. and like he ended up going down a real deep dark like drug path, and she broke up with him right before that happened. He's like living in like this tiny little shack in like Oklahoma now because she went back and visited him, like at at the end of the movie she goes back and visits him. Wow. And, uh, yeah, all those guys got sober from House Pain. They were all on, like, tons of drugs. Oh, sure. Ever ready. And... Well, damn. Ever, Everlast. Everlast, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ever ready. The battery. Like the battery. Um, this, yeah. This I is mean... the other Pearl Jam song. Yeah. State of Love and Trust. Yeah, this is probably one of my favorite Pearl Jam songs. State of Love and Trust. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just so well written, and it's yep. the opening. That opening guitar riff. Mike McCready just kills it. His guitar work in this is just like, and the bass. Like I never noticed the bass until recently. Jeff Ament's always just in the cut, just. The drums. 
whoever's I think it was Dave Aberzee still at this point. Yeah. He was an absolute beast. Yeah, I loved his shit. I think Jeff Ahmed is probably the most, un- for me, the most underrated member because I never really listened to any of the bass. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. a lot of it was how it was recorded. Well, also, yeah, a lot of the mixing, I especially on, on I was, 10. I was listening to cassettes the whole time. Yeah. You know? and, like, but, you listen to the two, the Redux versus yeah. the regular oh, yeah. version of 10. It's like two different albums. Yeah, no, those mixes are amazing. Especially that's, Jeff Ahmed. That's the best vinyl investment I think I've made so far. It's <laughs> phenomenal. I've turned a bunch of people onto it. Yeah. That My next door neighbor actually borrowed it. And he was like, dude, side two is ridiculous. He's like, it's like a whole other album. Like Garden and Porch, like yeah. those songs especially, they sound completely different. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. These guys were my heroes, man. They could do no wrong when I was 13, 14, 15 years old. Like, I was, like, yeah. so obsessed with Pearl Jam. It's just such a love affair. I, no other band before or since. Now it's, like, I, I, it's hard for me to even listen to a lot of this stuff until recently. Because I got so just burnt out on it. Yeah. Hearing the same shit over and over again. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's the way I was with Nirvana. Was It was yeah. just, like, there wasn't anything... There wasn't anything they could put out. I mean, they have that. They have a song called "Moist Vagina." Yeah, I know that's all. Yeah, that's literally just. It's literally just two notes. Yeah, and then they, and then back to the two notes, and he's like, "She had a moist vagina," and I'm like, "The song fucking slaps." I was like, "There's nothing." I had never heard that until I bought the um the box set. Oh yeah, with the lights out. Yes. Yes. See, I would go. I, I was would exposed go, to so much stuff on that that I'd never heard before when I bought that box set. In high school, I would go to Rainbow Records down in Newark, Delaware, and I would just hunt through the imports and yeah. shit. And I would, anytime there was a Nirvana import, if it had one song on it that I'd never heard of, or a live song, or a demo version of a song, right. like I would buy it. Right. So I just had a fucking stack. I had about a dozen Nirvana CDs. Because I had imports, I had collections. So there's a lot of there was a lot on When the Lights Out that I had heard before, like fucking the you know original pay to play version of Stay Away and um uh If You Must and you know all these all these wild songs that they recorded around the same around the same time they did Bleach. Because I feel like um, Incesticide, which was released after. Nevermind, but it was all previously recorded songs. Yeah. That had so many like throwaways from when they were recording for Nevermind and and stuff that they did when they recorded at Sub Pop for Bleach. So Incesticide was like a whole new album, even though there wasn't anything new that they had written on it. So for a band that only had three studio albums, ultimately, the fact that I had like 12, 13, 14 CDs of theirs... Like there wasn't anything, there wasn't anything they could do that I hated. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a song called D Seven that uh, is. Dude, I was just gonna bring that up. That is D- my absolute favorite Nirvana song of all time. D Seven is insane, that, and it's when that like song goes into it, like when it slams yeah. in, like it's like one of the greatest Nirvana songs ever. And it's like it's just like a fucking. As soon as it starts, as soon as it gets going, it's a fucking hundred miles an hour. Oh, that song. We're gonna play that. <laughs> and then. Um, Oh shit, I know this. This yeah, is Drown, dude. Drown, okay. 
Oh, the pumpkins. I never got into anything as much as Siamese Dream. I know, th- I know they did a lot of good stuff. Gish. But I, yeah, well, well you know, Gish, Gish is good. Yeah. And even uh, Pisces Iscariot, but like, I, I never got into my anything as much as Siamese Dream. Those three, Gish, Siamese Dream, and Pisces Iscariot, it's like the, the holy trilogy. I mean, yeah. I love Melancholy. It's a really, and I've actually gotten more into that because there's a lot. I should listen to that. There's a lot to, to dive into on that album. Yeah, I had like. It's a double album, it's a lot of stuff. Beyond um, Zero and Tales of a Scorched Earth, I never really listened to it. So There's I need some to jams on that album. You should go back to it. It's hard to like. Absolute jams. It was hard for high school me to digest a double album and from the pump. Really, and it's the production value is through the roof. Like, well, I feel like he's always been like, like a that, stickler this for that. This sounds kind of shit. so good for a band that's like '90s like grunge. They still always had a very yeah. glossy sheen to a lot of their stuff. Um, I feel like Siamese Dream kind of shoegazy. Yeah. But he's he's really good in the studio. Yeah. yeah. Total control freak. Alright. Which I can appreciate. Yeah. But this song It epitomizes that sound. Is this on another album? No. Besides this? No. Oh shit, man. This could have came off of Siamese Dream. Yeah. It has that same sound. I love Jimmy Chamberlain's drums. You know as soon as you hear his drums that it, that's who that is. Because he just has a very distinct, just like a fucking ape. Just like... But like, but at the same time, it's just very... Still does a lot of little stuff that's good. He's a really good drummer. James E. Huh? One of my favorite guitarists. When the song, oh, yeah. when the song that today video. hit really big, man, every guitarist I knew in high school, we were trying to mimic the Smashing Pumpkins distortion sound. With our pedals, I would go to fucking Guitar Center, or actually it was Accent Music at the time. I would go to Accent Music and I would just fucking plug into their pedal board and be like, nope, nope, that's not it, nope, that's not it, that's not it. Oh, this could be it, let me try it. I bought like three distortion pedals just trying to find that like Smashing Pumpkins because it's like fucking growly it's got like so yeah. much bass in it yeah which usually you know buries the bass player but it, it doesn't in this so like it's trying to find like what's that muffled sound that also is very present and it couldn't get it yeah I definitely know this but it's probably my top five favorite pumpkin songs of all time just saying a lot because I, I love the pumpkin and it's not even on the, the Trifecta album. No. It just has a very, like, it's like, it reminds me of, like, uh, one of the Smith songs, How Soon Is Now, where it's, like, seven minutes long, and it's just, like, goes up and down, and then there's, like, a lot of feedback, and there's a lot of, like, just, like, yeah very dreamy shoegazy type stuff and then all of a sudden it comes in and it's very 90s stop start stop right. start <laughs> oh did you think it was a quiet song well sure yeah, yeah. And he always did interesting stuff with his guitar and their sound I mean 
they just yeah. definitely you definitely know when you hear a pumpkin song you're like oh yeah that's smash pumpkin that's right that's billy Cor- that's william corrigan as he calls himself now <laughs> william corrigan yeah he's like a s- serious musician now the guy's the biggest dick ever <laughs> he's so full of himself but he can be i like he dude he did it like he did it all yeah yeah no it's you know he's it's the kind of guy that it's like well you know it's that's it's fine. You deserve you deserve this kind of praise, but also I don't want to be your friend. He's also a great interview. Like he's never boring. Right. Whenever they have him on, like Howard Stern or like any of those talk shows, like he's always just he's so like just to the point. Like doesn't right. bullshit about anything. He'll dish dirt on other people. Like he doesn't care. See that I appreciate. I can appreciate that level of of forwardness. But he's also just such a, like, just narcissistic, like, dick. Like, he just doesn't care. Mm. But you got, I guess you gotta be, in some ways. Yeah, it was kind of, it's kind of fucked up when, when Chris Cornell, you know, Chris Cornell killed himself. Ugh. There was, there was a couple of posts that I saw that was like, why couldn't it have been Billy Corgan? <laughs> and I'm like, that's. Not funny. I'm laughing because it, I have a condition. It's also funny because like people were like saying the other way. They were like, "We need to protect Eddie Vedder at all costs." Yes. Yeah. They're yeah. Like, we, we protect need to wrap Eddie Vedder in bubble wrap and keep him protected for all time. Has, how's he's he the doing? Only one left. Is he doing okay? Can we start a GoFundMe so he can have regular, you know, regular therapy sessions? Um. <laughs> yeah, I think. Um, yeah, the pumpkins, while I didn't consider them, you know, one of my top fives at the time in the 90s, they certainly they certainly were one of the first ten albums that I ever bought myself on CD. Oh, I yeah. can everybody, clearly... Everybody bought Siamese Dream. Yeah. It was the biggest album. I can clearly remember purchasing Bleach, Nevermind, and In Utero from Nirvana. I bought um, Bad Motorfinger. Oh. And... Um, That's such a monster. Yeah, Core and Purple, Siamese Dream, and then I also bought, uh... <sighs> Weezer's Blue Album? I did, I did, once in a... Yeah, I feel like that one came out late. No, no, that was out early. That was 90, yeah? Okay, 93. Sure. No, Weezer's Blue Album I definitely, I definitely was in love with. Um... Like I said, Nine Inch Nails, I got Pretty Hate Machine, Downward Spiral, and Broken... And then I went back and got, um, oh yeah, then I got, uh, Rage, Rage was another, that like, was another album that I was like, when the first time I heard that album, I was like, how does people make this noise like this? Right. I was like, this, what is this? Uh, it's my favorite Nirvana album. Talk about a fucking just opening to a song. Yeah. Dave Grohl's drums literally sound like they're coming out of your fucking speakers this whole album. Yeah. It's the best part of this whole album is Dave Grohl's drums. I'm really I'm really glad that they're as present as they are because I think it made such a huge difference. Like, it's not that like because the songs are well written, but in like in Bloom on fucking Nevermind, so much of that song is is the drums like so much is the fills in that song and like this album i mean 
besides Scentless Apprentice and shit like that, every single one of these songs, like, none of the drums in them feel, um, standard, you know? Like, everything is finely crafted for the song that was written. Ugh, like this, like fucking milk it. Ugh. Ugh. It just sounds like he's playing on a kit that's like 20 feet tall. Like, it's just gigantic. <laughs> like, they're like, and Steve Albini, when he put this, like, the way they cut, the recorded this album. Yeah. No, he did amazing work on this shit. The bass. It's just such a heavy album. Like, so different from Nevermind. I love it so much more. Yeah, no, this is this is my favorite. If you had to have a final album, it might as well be in utero. Yeah, but like, but it pissed a lot of people off because people like people that didn't get it, like people that were just like kind of casual, like you know. Oh yeah. Listeners were like, "Well, this isn't smells like teen. Like this isn't yeah. accessible." And I was like, "No, it's not. It's not at all. It's so much better." Yeah, and the beat like. What is considered B-sides on this album are some of the best songs yeah. that he ever wrote. Ugh! I just remember listening to this just fucking raging. My mom would be like, what is that noise coming out of your room? <laughs> yeah, me too. That's rock and roll. If it fucking scares your parents, it's rock and roll. <laughs> It's just an album that begs to be played so loud. Yeah, radio-friendly unit shifter. That's probably my favorite song on the album. It's like they opened. I love how fast it the is. The Reading Festival. No, it was some other. It was some other concert of theirs that they open open with radio-friendly unit shifter. It's like it's the perfect song to open. It's all about waking everybody up from the get-go. Were comparable. There's actually not. there's a if, I don't know if you ever um, if you ever have interest to read the do you ever see, hear of Thirty Three and a Third um, a book series called Thirty Three and a Third because RPMs it's mm-hmm. um it takes like the the author takes an album and like there's it's basically a whole bunch of like how it was recorded what was going on in the studio at the time what was happening in their personal lives right and they break it down like song by song right like, oh well on this song they oh, use awesome. this and that. The, the In Utero 33 and a third is only second to uh, In the Aeroplane Over the Sea for like just an awesome breakdown of the whole right. album cover, right. you know, front to back. But it's like one of my favorite little bits of, of trivia to, to just like delve into about albums. Um, I watched a really great um, interview with Taylor Hawkins, drummer from Foo Fighters. Foo Fighters, yeah. And, um, it was really cool because you know in it you know obviously eventually you get to the point where you're like so you drum for a band with one of the greatest drummers of all time right. how does that feel right. and like listening to him break down Dave Grohl like the way that he plays and the way that he interacts with people just gives me so much respect for him and like this this album was really one of the first times that Kurt let the rest of the band really have input on what right, they were doing, right. you know? So, I, I think that's why they lost uh, three drummers, went through three drummers before they found Dave Grohl to begin with. Um, was that it just, like, 
they couldn't they couldn't step back enough to just let Kurt be who he was. But when they got into the studio to record this, like the input of the other two artists and probably even Pat, I don't know if Pat recorded on In Utero or not, but was like actually taken into account and I think it makes such a huge difference with what the eventual like what the ultimate sound I don't think of this he recorded album is. this album, but I know that he was he on was that whole live. tour. Yeah. Like he was their like they needed him to play all the parts on this album live. Yeah. live. Ugh. Like when they did the famous New Year's Eve show. Yeah. That was the first time I've... you really saw him. Oh, maybe that's the one they opened with Radio Friendly Unit Shifter. That had the big yeah. the big in utero the angel, uh, angel yeah. behind him. Yeah. yeah. I remember that New Year's Eve. I was like, oh my god, Nirvana's playing New Year's Eve. I think so huge. I think I legitimately wore out three copies of this CD. Like they got like wore out meaning they got scratched to the yeah, point me too. because they were going in I had and at out. least two copies. Into the car, into yeah, the thing. Yeah. Yeah. I had at least two copies of this. I think I still have one somewhere. And I've probably bought it digitally twice. Right. Because I bought it in utero, but then I also bought the deluxe one when it came out. Right. Which I was not they remastered in utero and I don't like the way it sounds at all. Right. But the digital 20th anniversary one is worth it to have Albini's mixes of Heart Shaped Box and All Apologies. Oh, okay. Like, Steve Albini's mix of Heart Shaped Box is so much sloppier because they took they took um, the album and Geffen, you know, David Geffen was like, what in the fuck is this? You know, like, he had the same reaction right. that most of the most consumers did, like, too. This is a punk album. Yeah, and he was like, this is, we, you know, and, and Kurt fought for it, but then he also, like, eventually he just kind of gave up and gave in, and Albini fought for it, but then, uh, also at a point it's like, you're being paid to record it, you're not right. really a producer right now. So they actually had, um... I keep wanting to say Scott Lang, but that's not his name. The engineer that mixed all REM stuff. Right. Geffen had him do uh, Heart Shaped Box, Penny Royalty, and All Apologies to be singles. So the Albini mixes of those three songs are really fucking awesome. I'll check that out. Ugh. I'll probably get... I'll probably be buried with these speakers. I love them that much. (laughs) I literally come down at night sometimes and I just rub them because I'm like, I love you so much, KLF 20s. <laughs> I can see that. They're the most phenomenal speakers I've ever heard of. Just my make sure life. you put that in the will. It's going to be a big ass box, but. I wish I, I wish people listening could get a, an idea of like how fucking loud these things are. Like when they. Oh, yeah. We're not even at like halfway on the dial, and that was the loudest we were at. We were probably like a quarter of the way up pretty fucking awesome that's 100 decibels efficiency speakers with 200 watt per channel amplifier (laughs) i mean look at the size of that amp that's driving them right now it's fucking ridiculous it's like luxman from the 80s was like high level japanese fucking okay yeah i was gonna say that thing it it literally looks like it could launch a space shuttle yeah it's badass the one on the bottom you power a fucking car and it's already kind of a really warm sounding amplifier to begin with. And Do you with, just put it through a tube head? That's a tube preamp. Okay. Up top. So it's already like so it's double warm 
So like, which these speakers kind of need because they can be very bright. Right. I remember when you first got them. But like, when you're listening to it, like, this doesn't sound overly bright at all on this on any of them. I think I finally got to the point where the speakers have kind of the tweeters have worn in. Right. When I first got the new tweeters, they were like they were bright. Right. Right. And then once they finally. But I don't get ear fatigue listening. You can feel that bass kick. Two 10-inch wobbers. It almost gets better as it gets louder. They don't even break a sweat. Ugh. Well, and that's the most kick-ass fucking Nirvana song I think ever recorded. It's, it's so, so good. And th- like the amazing part about listening to it that loud and listening to something that can that like you said you can feel the kick like it is clearly defined in your chest like you can feel it one of the things that is so awesome about the recording that he did on this is that it has dynamics like oh yeah it's not just fucking smashed to the ceiling which is what yeah. i like about the remaster and it's not there doesn't sound like there's any sort of like digital replacement of drums and it's like that is so common in metal like every time there's a kick drum we're gonna replace it with this you know or add to it don't necessarily replace it all the time but the fact that you can hear the times where the pedal's not hitting as hard right. you know it's just it's just human it just has like a yeah, it's an analog fucking analog element to it i love this song so, so much this is one of those, like, these, these two songs, when they come on in the car, you're just like... <laughs> I was more into Side 1 when I was younger. And then as I got older, I fell in love with Side 2 more. Just because my taste changed. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I can only hear Heart Shaped Box and Rape Me so many times. Right. Where it's like, alright, but this side, it's like, I can listen to it every day. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty phenomenal. I think that they and then to close it out with this, like, <laughs> yeah, they hit such a perfect stride in in writing and recording this album that it's just, you know, I get why you know if somebody's not into this kind of music, why they wouldn't like it at all. But it's hard not to like this song. Yes, this is yeah, such yeah. an accessible, easy, like just beautifully produced song. Like yeah. the way it comes in. It's got violin, cello, whatever that is, mm-hmm. and then it's just like the drums are still grow, but he like dials it back. Yeah, yeah. Which is which was what was so wonderful about the unplugged. Yeah, yeah. Was seeing them do this stuff unplugged to me like holy shit. We yeah. we, we have no idea how talented these guys actually are because we had only heard two albums, you know, three albums. <laughs> that I just I didn't even realize, but I discovered on the on the unplugged vinyl. Yeah. The it's two it's two discs on the vinyl. Right. The whole side B of LP two is is five rehearsal tracks. What? So it's it's the engineers setting levels. How do I not have this? And they're rehearsing they're God fucking rehearsing like Heart Shaped Box and Penny Royalty and you know how But didn't they do this whole thing in one fucking take? They did. Which is insane. Yeah, they did. They insane. did the whole night in one take. But so in the but the rehearsal was, you know, sound check beforehand. Right, and then right, they went right, off and yeah. smoked but, but up to and do came that back. like one take of like one of the greatest unplugged yeah. albums ever created. Well and so the when they on the album during the show, 
you hear it like right before Penny Royalty, Kurt turns around to Dave and he's like, Am I doing this by myself? Right, right, right. And he's like, What you know, whatever yeah, you want, man, yeah. whatever you want. Whatever yeah, you I want. love that part. And he's like, Well, I'm gonna do it in a different key and then he you know, yeah. like whatever. And then he plays Penny Royalty by himself. Right. Be- the rehearsal recording, they were playing along right. and Dave was singing melody. Right. Or harmony, sorry. Dave right. Grohl was singing harmony and it sounds like utter shit. Right. On the rehearsal. Right. And so like when it's over, you can hear them like away from the microphone talking. Right. And he was he was clearly very unhappy with how it sounded in rehearsal. Right. right. Which is like I never heard that before I had the vinyl. No so shit. so I didn't going know that either. Going back and being like, Oh fuck, that's why he's like, Am I gonna do this by myself? Right. Asshole. <laughs> Because you like, sound like shit. Oh, man, that's that's when, when, you know... I mean, fuck, I wouldn't want to have chronic stomach pain and and hate my stardom. But, like, oh, that's when he was a dickhead sometimes. Oh, he was... You can tell he was a dick, yeah. <laughs> but so, like, it's... It was it was wild. Like, I didn't even realize that when I bought the vinyl, that that whole side B is, uh... Is rehearsal stuff, so... But, yeah, it's cool, man. Yeah. They might even be... They might, even, they might be on Spotify... It's worth I'm just sure checking them out to I'm listen sure to are. it. But that was like my favorite find of that whole album is so magical. Like just putting that on and listening yeah. to it from like beginning to end, it's just like mm-hmm. there's not an ounce of fat on like that entire yeah. performance, and you're just like, well, and get I, any better. And I remember not liking it specifically because I was you know 17 and I was into their heavy shit. And right. I, I didn't want to hear right. I didn't want to hear unplugged Nirvana, but you know, no, the I, older lo- I, I got, loved it from the get go, and then as I got older, I even loved it even more. <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely grew on the me. The Meat Puppets as stuff, one of their was best oh, the Lake of Fire, and meat like Puppets showing up. Oh man, like some of those songs because I had never heard. And then when he did uh, Jesus Don't Want Me for a Sum, he was doing like old like blues standards, yeah. and like he just man pulled who sold the world from yeah, Bowie. David Bowie, like he just pulled out like the most perfect selection of random shit to put on. Like he could have put. They could have just sat there and played mm-hmm. Nevermind, yeah. unplugged, and how boring would that have been? Right. You know what I mean? But he <laughs> was like, I'm going to do all these weird, like, old, you know, what was it, Muddy Waters stuff. Yeah, and, like, Lead he, Belly. Lead Belly. Like, he so, just, like, pulled shit out of his ass. There's, I feel like there's longer edits of those songs, too, on the vinyl. Because right before he does Where Did You Sleep Last Night, he talks to the audience about, he's like... He's like the guy from Lead Belly's estate tried yeah. to sell me his guitar right. for half a million dollars. I tried to get David Geffen to buy it for me. <laughs> I was like, that's that's awesome right there. Can you spend half a million dollars or whatever, a quarter of a million dollars on this guitar for me? Like well, well, you know, sticking with the 90s, I mean, Blind Melon's sticking right out there. I, I at least want to say that it was it warmed my heart. Oh, Nico, yeah. It warmed my heart to see you post some of that because, oh, dude, that album's magical. Well, and you know, of course, I never knew anything but No Rain, and I, I wasn't like a huge fan of the B song. If it came on, I'd sing along to it, oh, and I, it was I, great. After a while, I hated that song, but the rest of the album is fucking gold. Yeah, and I never, I never give it a chance. I never really listened to it until a couple of years ago. Hoon's voice. Yeah, and then, and then went to Soup, which is another one that I, you know, really dug. Like. It, I didn't realize how good That's a band. Soup is on here. Oh, okay. The actual the songs. Right. I didn't realize how good a band they were. They're ridiculously un- underrated. Until I listened to everything that wasn't No Rain. Yeah. I mean, that whole album, literally, you can turn <clears> on their self titled album from start to finish and just let it play. 
Right. There's not a bad song on the whole album. Like, Tones of Home and Change, Change is, like, one of the greatest songs I've ever written. Yeah, I feel like I've I definitely have heard that before. I still haven't I still haven't um dug in as much as I should have, but this was Nico, which was the album they put out. No, it's just a collection of their B sides. Okay. Just to give you an idea, their second most popular song is Change. Thirty seven million plus streams on Spotify. No Rain has 236 million streets. Ugh. This is Nico. Yeah, this song's called Pusher. It's actually a Steppenwolf song. It's a cover of a Steppenwolf song. Oh, shit. Which I didn't know until I read the liner notes. But he's so good. He's like a male version of Janis Joplin. That's what I was going to say. I was like, it feels like fucking Robert Plant, Janis Joplin. Janis Joplin, like in male form. And then wait till it comes in. And they only had these three, right? Yeah, this is their last one. Yeah, this their guitarist is badass, dude. This is a legit rockin' song. Yeah, I never noticed the sipping time sessions on here. Yeah, I don't know what that is. Demos, is that maybe? like a remaster album or something? Yeah, probably. Soup, 1995, and this yeah. was 96. Uh yeah, ninety two was was their self titled album, and then they didn't put out anything else until ninety five when Soup came out. Yeah, because he was so fucked up on drugs. Right, they couldn't like keep him under control. Wow, wow. Like everybody else, he was just strung out on heroin. Mm. This sounds like a Black Crows song, right? 90s rock anthems. That's what Spotify has always wants me to listen to. <laughs> I love his voice on this song. And then when this song comes in, like when when the crescendo, when it's like bam. Such an underrated backing, like the band itself. Yeah, really yeah, good yeah. musicians. Where were they from? Do you know? I don't know. I'm gonna check. That's a good question. Oh, L.A. Yeah, I kind of for some reason I thought they were a California. Oh, band. It, it does say they they formed in L.A. Yeah. But three of them are from Mississippi, one from Pennsylvania, one from Indiana. Here it comes. Mm. He died before this came out. Yeah, I didn't even realize that. Well, it's, that it, it's named after his daughter. Nico Blue is his daughter's name. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah, man, that's fucking sad. Yeah, that's the only, that's like the footnote to like anything we talk about is the 90s. All of my fucking heroes are dead, man. Like, right. All of my favorite hip hop artists, all my favorite singers, 
They're all fucking dead, man. It's brutal. It's like I was watching that kid 90s documentary. It's like watching all these, like, art. Dude, the 90s was vicious with, like, right. people talk about, like, the, the 60s, like, killing a lot of rock stars. Like, comparatively, the 90s has them beat by a ton. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, we lost Hendrix and Joplin and Jim Morrison and all those, you know, the, the boomers love talking about those guys. And they'll be like, oh, we did the most drugs. And I'm like, we did the most lethal drugs. <laughs> yeah. Like, the 90s literally just killed everybody. Like, yeah. that was of any importance, really. I mean, the most, most artists. And it wasn't just artists, man. It was like our, our, our athletes. We had a lot of athletes die. We had movie stars die. Like, it was just, the drug seemed so bad. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the stripped-down version. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like the stripped-down version. I can't. It's hard for me to listen to the regular version now. Sure. I hated that song. But he just Dude, had this. This literally sounds like Led Zeppelin covering Blind Melon. It does, it's doesn't so it? It's so good. Yeah. Uh, like they recorded this in a hotel room, like with a four track or something. It sounds like yeah, yeah. You can tell it sounds like shit, but. Yeah, he's Shannon Hoon was just a singular talent. Yeah, yeah. I think you know, second, second to Kurt Cobain's suicide, that I, losing Lane Staley was probably the biggest hit for me. Oh yeah, it wasn't shocking when he died, to right. be honest. But it still sucked. Yeah, I just connected so much with their music, with their style, and with his vocals. Um, you know, when I, as much as I loved, I mean, Nirvana's my favorite band next to Bark Market of all time, for sure. And, but when, but like, when even I... Even more than Jimmy's Chicken Shack? <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, probably more than Jimmy's Chicken Shack. But even, but, but Alice in Chains was always probably the biggest influence on my songwriting. Mm. Because, like, just the, the, the style of their songs and the style of his like the way his lyrics were and the way that his voice was a huge influence on on my like actual writing yeah i can't wait to go back and listen to these three albums i keep trying to this is from this is on the first album this is soul one. Oh, okay but i think this is a different this is a demo, or this is the original, original demo of it. It's almost identical, but it's still fantastic. Probably one of my favorite songs on the whole album. I'm always so curious what their songwriting, um, like what the mechanics are of their songwriting. Does the guitarist come out and he's like, I've got this, you know, these chords that I think sound really great. And he's like, oh, let me just kind of like make something up and I'll sing along to it. And then we'll we'll be like, yeah, that's good. Now let's write some lyrics and then we'll get the rest of the orchestration in, you know, or... I imagine everybody's, they're all different. Yeah. Everybody's got a different process. Like each band has its own little microcosm of how they record. Yeah. How they put together songs. I mean, some guys, it's just like 
some guys do the lyrics and the and the melody before any music gets put out, and then some, right. some guys the opposite. You know what I mean? Yeah, because you know, for for Nirvana, it was very much like Kurt with an acoustic guitar being like, "This sounds fun. I'm gonna hum something to it. Lyrics don't matter, and right. then we'll we'll take it to the studio and we'll we'll figure it out there, right. or take it to the practice room and figure it out there." Whereas like Soundgarden, every single member of that band wrote songs for the album. And then they all kind of like came together, like especially super unknown. Oh, it's, mm. it's wild when you look at the credits and you're like, "This was written by Matt Cameron." Like Matt Cameron wrote this song. Yeah, you know who's now or, a drummer for Pearl Jam. Who's now yeah, who's yeah. now Pearl Jam's drummer instead yeah. of Soundgarden? They were like, "Yoink, we'll take him." Yeah, talk about a pickup. <laughs> I don't know if you know about our drummer situation, but yeah, they've had like seven. I didn't even realize, again, speaking of Taylor Hawkins, I didn't realize that he was Alanis Morissette's drummer before... He was Alanis Morissette's live drummer before um, Foo Fighters, Foo Fighters right. snagged him up. That's and Foo Fighters is literally, like, the second band that he was ever a part of. So he was part of Alanis Morissette Live right. and then became the drummer for Foo Fighters. Like, that's fucking wild, dude. Some guys have all the luck. Yeah, right? Uh, he was, like, 19 years old. fell into it, yeah. Ah, well, this was a lovely trip down memory lane. Yeah, I, I feel like we would need like three hours to do like a Probably. real good '90s. Like, we could almost have a '90s part two if we do another one. Absolutely, uh, we could dive into some more uh, more albums just in general. I think. Yeah, we don't necessarily have to go artist by artist, but I think it's more like look at albums in general. Sure, that shaped you know our our teen years, being grown up teens in the '90s. I think we were blessed with some of the best, some of the best music. Period. Like yeah. as far as not not just grunge and alternative, but hip hop. Um, I mean, which we already did a, a whole thing on hip hop, but you know. <clears throat> yeah. So if you haven't heard that, why aren't you go back and listen to the '90s hip hop episode as well? My buddy, uh, I have a shout out to my buddy Andy, who I would love to have on the show. He's my old roommate from um, Maniunk, and we also grew up and partied together in Delco. Nice. Um, and he is a, now a big IT uh, big shot. But he listens. He has his own podcast as well for uh, his nice. IT. And um, he's been listening to a lot of our stuff. And he's literally texts me like every day, like with little <laughs> snippets of like saying like he's gone through. He's like you know the '90s and like uh, the breakup one, and then like uh, you know he'll like he'll like text me every once in a while like dude, you guys are cracking me up about some of this. He's like it's a really. <laughs> You're just a lot of good feedback, so thank you, Andy, and we would love to have you on the show. Hell yes. Figure out what uh, what he likes, what he wants to talk about, and get him in here. And yeah, he's got he's a musician as well. Nice. Um, so he's... well, then no, he can't come. We're not allowed. We can't <laughs> you only have, have you only have one musician in the studio <laughs> one time. <laughs> no, that'd be awesome. Yeah, no, and I can I'm I can think of you know hundreds of other, like I said you know I I I went down the. Um, the darker side of the 90s as well into the yeah. industrial rabbit hole with Nine yeah. Inch Nails and Filter and Marilyn Manson and so I could certainly definitely short bus Filter I could talk about for a long time Filter, yeah. yeah that's like 10 of my favorite songs from my teen years so we didn't get into um, Jane's Addiction oh my god and Perry god. Farrell that whole right the Red Hot Chili Peppers and that whole like scene yeah um, no that was a big part of my personal like I Chili Peppers are one of my favorite bands of all time, and Jane's Addiction. Um, Again, extremely underrated musicians in the Chili Peppers. Yeah. 
Yes. No matter no matter how anyone feels about Anthony Kiedis. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you can get past Anthony Kiedis, <laughs> John Prashani is probably my favorite guitarist of all time. Yep. Yeah. He's probably a beast. my favorite guitarist. He's a beast. Love his sound. Yeah, I, I Stadium Arcadium is like I, that's what I was just about to say. It's a masterpiece. I was like, it's, I love, I love Blood Sugar Sex Magic because oh, that yeah. was like my introduction. Oh, dude, that album slaps. But Stadium, Stadium Arcadium, Arcadium is, is fucking is a, phenomenal. It's a phenomenal. Like from a guitarist point of view, yeah. like they literally were just like, <laughs> here you go. Like Anthony Kiedis, that was the album where he just gave it to Frashani and said, you just like he did every right. fucking song. Like that was that was his magnum opus where he was just like. He had free reign to just like just a solo like every fucking song was Ugh. just ridiculous. Yeah, it's fucking killer. We could sit here for an hour and talk about Stadium Arcade <laughs> because that album <laughs> is literally when that came out. It's all I listened to for so, three months that summer. That's all I listened to was that album. <laughs> and even now, when I go back to it, I'm like, God damn, this album slaps. Was that um, that was also in the was that in the nineties? No, like two thousand five. Oh, okay, two thousand five. That album came out. All right, distinctly remember. Yeah, man, I didn't hear I didn't hear it until much later. But uh, well, not much much. I later. bought the, I bought that CD in the store and I listened to it for an entire summer. Like it was just like etched in my brain, driving down the shore listening to that. Like yeah, two thousand eight. I had a buddy who like I thought he was joking. I thought he was joking about like how much he loved Red Hot Chili Peppers because he was yeah. he was just like one of those kids that right. you could never tell whether he was being serious or not. Right, right. And then he showed up with Stadium Arcadium and he was like, "No, really, you have to listen to this." Yeah. And I wound up borrowing it from him, <laughs> copied it all on the computer, and rocking out. Yeah. Well, definitely, definitely a rain check then for a nineties nineties albums from our youth part two. Yeah, um, but yeah, man, it was good getting back into the cave and jamming out. It's a little cozier down here now. We've got some like chill, more chill lighting. Chill I got a rug down here. Little on the rug. Floor. It's a little warmer and cozier now. Well, it will once the, the weather warms up. It's been, right. It's been rather frigid down here, but awesome, man. Until next time. Thank you much. Yep. Like this, like fucking milk it. Oh. oh.